this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I actually am, although I'm always excited, I'm really excited today to talk to Mike Evans. He is the founder of Grubhub, and he did it in his spare bedroom and grew it into the multi-billion dollar online food delivery that we know all so well. Since leaving Grubhub though, he has founded Fixer, an on-demand handy person service focused on social impact, but he also has a new book out called Hangry, a startup legacy, which I love that you use that word, that term, because I think we've all gone, I'm hangry, like I need to just step away for a second. So welcome to the show, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. Fortunately, I just had lunch, so I will not be hangry at you during okay. this Okay. All right. Well, you know, for those of you outside the U.S., it's sort of a little play on I'm hungry and angry and that or I'm hungry. So it makes me angry. You combine the two, you get hangry. So for those of you that that don't know that little Americanism, I think. Well, before we get started, I would love to begin with what I call bullish and bearish. Uh, It's something uh, bullish is your for it. Bearish is your against it. Nothing too painful. It's quick little questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. The first one. Autonomous food delivery, bullish bearish. or bearish? Total disaster, bearish. Oh, yeah. not what I expected. All yeah. right. And I'm a technophile. I am I am big on new technology, but that's that's going to come around the same time we get flying cars and lightsabers. We're like 60 years out. Okay, so then I'll, I'll drop my flying car question. Okay, next. <laughs> <laughs> bullish and bearish, electric bikes. Bullish. Nice. Okay, well, I'm, I'm so I'm splitting it. All right, here is the here is the deciding. We've got bearish. We've got a bullish. Next, do it yourself projects at home. Bullish. Oh, Absolutely. yeah. All right, all right. So thank you for having a little fun. Um, you know, I I, I don't want to jump into autonomous food delivery. Let's let's tick that back off at the end because I'm dying to hear. You know, obviously you're so close to this entire sort of industry that I would love to uh, to hear it. But look, there's not many people like you that have not only started a company, but started one that was so highly disruptive from a behavior standpoint, but also from an industry standpoint, and one that timed it accordingly, right? Because I think that in the early days of the dot-com boom, right, we had lots of things that just were a little early. And it's like, you know, you timed it right, the market was right, the idea was right, and it was very successful. So maybe you can Step us through founding of Grubhub. Yeah, so uh, speak, so I founded Grubhub in two thousand four, or uh, sorry, two thousand two, in my apartment, uh, late two thousand two. You may remember there was a movie called The Net, it had Sandra Bullock in it, and it was this like hacker movie. It's kind of cheesy. She orders a pizza online. In this is this movie was nineteen ninety eight, right before the dot com boom sort of hit its height. And so by the, at the time I started the company, it felt like it was late. And it, it it turns out I wasn't. It turns out I was right on right on time. Uh, and so I started my apartment. It started out actually as a as a neighborhood delivery guide. I uh, would list restaurants that delivered to my address, and then I started adding other people's addresses. And then at some point, decided I was going to charge customers uh, restaurants for exposure. And then that evolved into ultimately into online ordering. Uh, and then you know, twelve years later, it was a multi billion dollar company that I took through an IPO. Easy, just step one, two, three, right? right. Uh, there was a little bit in between. Uh, step A and B there, yeah. Well, you know, I think there's there's something in the first comment you made is you felt there was a need, and most of the time when this happens, it's an individual need. Like 
you wanted to, right? You were getting food delivery. You felt like, well, if I'm getting it, others should get it. How could I make this more, not only easy for myself, but for others? It's sort of that that need that you want to fill. You can use it with Netflix. You can use it with you. You can use it with Amazon, right? You can use all these great examples. Um, and so for those listening, right, how do you uncover that really good idea when it comes to a need? Yeah, I, it's like I wanted a pizza, right? And getting a pizza was hard. And that that perspective, like there's a thing that I'm annoyed about and I want a solution to it. And weirdly, I was way more annoyed about it than a lot of people are, right? Like when, when I say p- getting a pizza was hard, most people are like, it's not that hard, like, hard to call a restaurant. Most people are dead wrong, right? It's so hard to call a restaurant and place an order that by the time, you know, fast forward five years and the online ordering system is fully developed, people are ordering it eight to 10 times the frequency they did prior to having that. I mean, it was so much friction in the phone ordering. And, uh, and so there's this thing that happens where like, there's this thing I'm cranky about and I, and I think it's a real problem and everybody else around me is like, well, okay, yeah, it's kind of annoying. But it's not that much of a problem, but the difference between a miserable, cranky, grumpy person and an entrepreneur is then I did something about it. Then I actually created a website to, to start solving the problem. And then that was a hobby. And then I started charging customers and it became a business. Um, and so, you know, that's, that was sort of the evolution, this sort of idea of like, it's this thing that's annoying to me, I'm going to solve a problem. It just so happens that it was a problem for other young professionals and people further on in their career who, who had disposable income, right? As opposed to like, I was in college and I was annoyed about paying for textbooks and I solved the problem of textbooks, but college students don't have any money. So like, that's a terrible business model. So it's not just that I was annoyed about something. I was annoyed about something that had economic potential. Well, I, I remember those days I was working for uh, a very, uh, the U.S.'s largest web hosting company in the early 2000s and, and you know, selling domain names. And people were like, why would I ever, like, I don't even know what that is, right? Or don't place an ad in, you know, for those of you who remember, right? The yellow pages, like do it on this thing called the World Wide Web. Right. And I remember knocking on doors, not literally, but virtually knocking on doors and trying to tell them this story. Like, this is where the market is going. And they'd look at me like I had three heads. Yeah. So I'm guessing when you first knocked on restaurants and went, hey, here's this idea. There's a lot of friction. Go on this thing called the World Wide Web. I don't know if you called it, you know, the web or if you called it the Internet, whatever. Um, and, and said, I think you should go here. And they were probably doing the same contemplation. Yellow page ad, direct mailer or what? Yeah. And that's exactly right. It was yellow pages or internet. And we even did say World Wide Web. And uh, and yeah, I, I actually had printouts of the website because it was like too much of a like technological jump to show a website on a laptop. Like it was easier to just show the printouts and show what it looks like if somebody was browsing online. And so, you know, what, one of the things that I'm trying to do is as I start the business, I'm trying to change restaurants behaviors and from going from advertising in yellow pages and advertising in grocery store receipts and putting flyers out on doorsteps to publishing something on an, in a digital space. And so that I didn't, I wanted to make it as familiar as possible, even while changing a behavior. Well, imagine. So what year was that when, when you started, you know, like That's, knocking uh, on the rest- 2004 is when I went full time and, uh, and and was really signing up restaurants, like going door to door, signing up restaurants. Okay. So 2004, fast forward, the pandemic hits and still yet, it was like 70% of restaurants were not yet online. Yeah. I think, um, 
I, I the phone is the least used app on the phone, right? And it's at this point, it's we expect every industry, every consumer experience that we have, we expect to use the phone as a remote control for our lives. Like that really is its its functionality at this point. And so um, the, the pandemic was an accelerant for online ordering of all types, not just in the food industry, in a lot of different industries. Um, but it, it was only maybe accelerated by a year or two. I mean, this was this change was coming. It just went, it came a little faster and, and with more disruption. Yeah. And, and literally, you know, I, I use this example all the time when I'm on stage, like how many restaurants didn't actually have their menus up online. That, that was kind of, that's their first step into it. Yeah. Then it was like, right, like order. And I mean, just locally, how many restaurants like immediately got on to food delivery when yeah. the pandemic hit and it kept them afloat, right? It kept yeah. them going. Um, this wasn't the first time this happened. The same thing happened um, during the housing crisis that, um, you know, I had entrepreneurs or restaurateurs who came to me and said, I kept the, the Grubhub kept their business afloat during the, the, the Great Recession. It, this seems like ancient history, 2008, right? But it seems like 2008, 2009, it seems like ancient history, but it was like a really big deal that as people were tightening their, their spending habits, they went from going out and using open table to do reservations to using Grubhub to still have a treat. And so, um, you know, we, we help, you know, by reducing the friction that customers had and increasing the convenience to actually be able to place an order, um, we were increasing the number of orders that people actually placed for delivery. And that, that trend just continued. I mean, I think at the time of the IPO in 2014, we had 70,000 restaurants, actually maybe 80,000 restaurants signed up on the platform. So it's not like it went from zero to a million, you know, like overnight with the pandemic. It required a really big base, you know, prior to this huge unexpected event occurring. And then how do you, how did you sort of come to, how are you going to make money at doing this? Yeah. So at first I, my, my first, the first restaurant, my business partner, Matt sold a restaurant for six months of advertising where it was just the top, top spot on the webpage. And that was for $140. That was the first check we got. Um, eventually what it became, I, you know, I came to realize that with, with, it was hard to keep restaurants repeating unless I showed them they were getting orders. So it started with this phone system where we would track the order. We'd put up a special phone number, we track the orders that they were getting through the phone. And it was a very quick evolution from that to online ordering. And then once the online ordering was there, I was like, why am I charging a subscription? Let's just, let's just like, if a restaurant gets three orders, they get to pay nine bucks. So they get a hundred orders, they pay 300 bucks. We'll just charge three bucks an order. And that's how, that's how it started. That's how it really started to shift. And it's funny you mentioned the, the menus because, it, you know, these, these kinds of businesses, they're actually notoriously hard to start because of the chicken or the egg problem. Like the if, unless you have restaurants signed up, there's no value to diners. And if you don't have diners, there's no value to restaurants. So like, how do you, which one do you do first? And I, what I did is I actually ended up picking up all of the paper menus in the entire city of Chicago. Like I literally rode my bike the whole city. picked up, And I did the same thing in San Francisco, then scanned all the menus and put them online for all the restaurants so that there was some value to customers coming to the website um, before the online ordering even turned on. And so like at first the, the innovation was discovery. And, and information. It, ordering wasn't until years later. Yeah. And, and now I, I, I feel like it has moved a little bit and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, cause I'm a quote unquote customer, right? 
Um, and I have friends in the restaurant business and it's gotten very expensive for them now to use these services, right? Where it used to be kind of of benefit to me, consumer, and everyone's going to make a little bit of money, right? My restaurant gets more customers, you know, delivery service gets a little percentage. And now in some cases, it's really digging into profitability, especially as things get more expensive, right? And they're either going to pass that fee on to me as a consumer or, you know, by raising prices, or they're going to continue to make less. Do you think we've gone too far in, in that sharing of the expense? I think that what happens when you have, so there's three main players in the space right now, right? There's Grubhub, Seamless, and Uber Eats. Uh, sorry, Grubhub, DoorDash, and Uber Eats. And um, I think what happens if businesses aren't sufficient, sufficiently differentiated from each other, they end up just competing by paying advertising dollars to acquire customers. And so I think that that's what those three businesses are doing. And so all of that expense structure that's embedded in the in the industry, it's all just getting shoveled to, all the money's just getting shoveled to Google and Facebook for consumer acquisition. Like the, the um, there's very little margin to be had when everybody's sort of got a race, race to just acquire customers in like this arms race that's going on between those businesses. And so at some point, one of those businesses has to say enough, we're gonna compete by having a better product and whatever that means. And we're not just going to pay out the nose for customers. And, uh, and I think that at that point, then the, the, the business can be profitable, which means that the restaurants that they serve can be, can, can have better margins as well. Well, I think that's a shift that, um, you know, it, it's like, do you focus on CAC, right? The customer acquisition cost? Do you focus on, um, you know, the, the experience? I mean, I often say the experience a customer has, you know, customers will remember much longer than the price that they paid. Like how easy was it? How frictionless was it? Like, was my order right? Was it complete? Was it fast? Was it, you know, all of those things. And if I have to pay a little premium for it, it's worth it to me. Um, but as people start to tighten their belts, and this is really across the board. I mean, obviously not all of the listeners are in the food delivery business, but, you know, companies do two things. They make stuff, they sell stuff. So how do you make stuff better, right? How do you acquire the customer that you can then sell to? And how do you make some money doing it? And yeah. it's not that complicated. So out of the food delivery business, what what are those key learnings that you can apply to any business? Yeah, I think um, you can't. So so optimizing for CAC, right? Like there's there's a point at which you can't spend efficiently. There's a point where you hit diminishing returns where you're trying to acquire customers. And so if you have ownership pressure to grow the number of customers that you have by X, regardless of the price, that, that can be really bad because you can be way into diminishing returns in terms of whatever channels you're using for advertising or marketing. And so um, I, I always think that it's a combination of obviously effective spend, effective channels, effective optimization of those channels on the marketing side. But the product has to be great. The product has to be so good that people repeat purchase again and again and again because the product drives frequency and loyalty. That You cannot win... You cannot win competing. Maybe some companies can, but I don't think it's possible to win competing against another company going head to head just on spend. You're not going to be so much more effective with spend that like the, the product doesn't matter. You, you have to compete on the product. Like the, the product has to deliver a great experience. And and, the, and I talk about this in the book in Hangry, um, that the, the food delivery industry has a horrifically high error rate. It's 14%. 14% of all orders have something wrong with them. And, you know, you get a pot pad, uh, you know, get a Thai iced tea instead of a Thai iced coffee, or it's late or it's cold or whatever, which means that the product has to have an embedded level of customer service and quality 
and um, promoting the restaurants that have high quality and diminishing the orders to the restaurants that have poor quality. It has to be embedded in the product. You cannot just sell to the highest bidder. And so um, it, it's, that's part of the product is the experience, is the customer service and the experience and making sure you solve problems before they exist for the customer. Yeah, and, and I think that's where um, many companies take their eye off the ball that they do a lot of effort around what is that experience? What is the journey for the customer? But then when they uncover pain points, they're not willing to go in and do the hard work to fix it, right? Or to change operational or processes or infrastructure or tools, whatever you want to put underneath that. Um, how do you, how would you, what would you say to leaders who go like, I, I think we have a higher error rate, whatever that error rate means. Yeah. I know this is where we have the issue, but I just can't get people on board to do the hard work to fix it. So I think one of the first skills you have to learn, or one of the best skills maybe you have to learn as leaders, how to apologize. So let's talk about some different apologies. So I'm sorry you feel that way is not an apology. That's an accusation, right? So so the, what, is an, what is an apology? An apology is when you say, I'm sorry, we messed up. I'm going to make this right right now for you with whatever that means, a discount, a, a coupon code, whatever. And I'm going to make the problem. I'm going to solve this problem right now. And we're going to look at what caused it in the first place. We're going to root out the problem and we're going to make sure it doesn't happen to the next customer. And if you can say that whole thing every time that you mess up and you do it again and again, and you do it a thousand times and then you do it 10,000 times and you literally have whole teams of people working at, how do we make sure that problem that customer just had doesn't happen again? You'll never eliminate all of the problems, but categorically, you can reduce the number of times that they happen and you can you can eliminate entire category of problems and then whatever the next one down is the one you work on next. And so um, it, it, it's a culture of innovation and iteration that that drives um, you know this idea of like solve customer problems in the moment, but make sure that they don't happen again. It's so rare to get that kind of an apology from a company and you feel it, you feel good when you do, even, even if you, even if you had a really bad experience, right? If when you hear somebody say to you, we're going to make sure it doesn't happen to another customer. I'm, and, and by the way, I'm sorry this happened to you. And here's whatever, $10 off your next order or full reap or whatever the, the or, or whatever the current, like the immediate fix is that, that next step of, I'm not going to do it again, which by the way, th this is also good for relationships, right? Like if you, in friendships and what, in whatever, in primary relationships and parents, children, like the idea of like, I, I messed up and I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen again. It goes a long way. And, and that was probably one of the key learnings I took from Grubhub into the new business, into the handy person business, where there's just a wide variety of things we do and we get it right most of the time, but not every time. And it's important. It's important to not stick your head in the sand, right? It's important to attack the, the mistakes and make sure that they don't happen again. So that would be my, that's how I would say if, if, Whatever, however complex the business, that's true for all businesses. You have to know how to apologize. I, I, and I think I, that is such a great piece of advice. So simple. Um, behind that, though, is being able to capture those mistakes, track those mistakes, put people against fixing those mistakes, yeah. you know, and then sort of, you know, making sure that everybody knows that mistake has then been fixed and, you know, how that then continues to improve through the process. I mean, it's so yeah. easy to say, and then it requires so much on the back end. Well, if you're willing to promise to customers that you're going to make it better for the next person, but you're not, you're not willing to actually go do that. That's, 
I, if you didn't, if your mama didn't teach you honesty, I can't. Like, I, I don't know what else to tell you. Like, if you're willing to make that promise but not follow through on it, you have bigger problems than you have than than whatever your business has, right? And so, it it the the promise forces it. If you tell all of your team that they're making those promises to make things better, and then tell then not give them the resources to actually make it happen, like you the, you won't keep the people in the company. Like nobody likes lying to customers. So absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I think intention is always we're going to do it. We're going to say it. We're going to do it. Sometimes, it, sometimes that always happens. We say and do what we're supposed to do, um, and and other times it doesn't. And I think especially now as customer expectations continues to increase, what they want and expect from any brand cross you know cross industry continues to get higher. Right, those expectations get higher, and the effort they want to put forth to get that expectation they want also to decrease, right? I want to have to work less hard to get it and I want a better experience. And so on the other end of that is lots of, in- did that make sense? I, I don't know. I agree because, because okay. the second business I started, the handy person business, we literally picked a, an extremely hard business because we knew that we, we, know, we knew we were going to charge a premium rate. We knew it was going to be a very high-end white glove service. But we also knew that if we figured out how to solve these problems, it was going to be very hard for somebody to copy us. And so I actually like the idea of tackling the hard problems that are high effort and then charging a premium for them. I think it's easier to differentiate. It's easier to build a, a, a scale, a high scaling business that, that, that's got some resistance to competition if you, if you pick the hard problems. Yeah. So let me be clear. Uh, the effort for the customer decreasing. Oh, I see. Yep. All right. Well, yeah, I agree with that. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, I, I I knew you missed it when when you said that. I'm like, he probably thought I meant, yeah, because the high effort for the customer is the reason they want something like what you've now launched, right? Like yeah. it's 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 too much for me. It's not what I do. I have a day job. Like I don't want to have to worry yeah. about it. So take away my effort and increase the experience and I'm willing to pay a premium for it. Yeah, I think people need when you when you're talking about changing consumer behavior. A good rule of thumb is the new experience has to be 10 times better than the old experience, not just twice as good. It's got to be tremendously better than the old experience for people to just incur, incur the switching cost. And some of that you're delivering more value. Some of it's you're removing friction, just making people's lives easier uh, for sure. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, and I want to, you know, give some space as well that, that, you know, I'm going to give you a little segue to this, that, Sometimes, and I'm not necessarily saying in in Grubhub's experience, you know, situation is sometimes when we focus on decreasing the effort for the customer in order to increase that experience. And to your point, 10x better that experience, right? To get someone to switch or even to try something that they're uncomfortable with, right? I think that you know industries where someone is familiar with the kind of service, like I catch a taxi, I know exactly what a taxi does. So Uber's now going to say it's just like a taxi, but a better experience. I, you don't have to teach me something I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it makes it a little easier. But sometimes on the other side of that, the employee effort actually goes up and burnout increases and they feel like, you know, look, I'm having to work harder, not smarter, because I'm asked to do more and more as we try to decrease it for the customer. And I, there's a segue here. So stay with me for a second. But with a lot of burnout that we're now seeing this great resignation, we've got a lot happening around people reassessing their purpose, why they're doing things, what they're doing. Is it what they want to continue to do? Do they want to work that hard? You know, do they, and I don't mean like quiet quitting. I mean, it shouldn't have to be this hard. And I know you went through a transition. Something got you to say, it's time for me to leave Grubhub 
and you kind of went on this self-reflection journey. Maybe you can walk us to the line of why you decided to go, what you did during that time, and then what got you to your next your next project. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I started Grow Hub, and I talk and I talk about this a lot uh, in the book. That when I started when I started Grow Hub, I just wanted to pay off my school debt. But but that grew. I overshot that that goal, and so I had new goals that changed. Uh, and and as it got to be 2010, 2011, my goal became I wanted a platform that made made it easier for independent restaurants to compete against the big chains, and and I wanted to create something that made it really more likely for a restaurant to be in business if they used us than if they didn't. Um, the the closure rate for restaurants is horrific. It's like 30% per year. And I wanted to just keep restaurants in business because of the product that I that I was releasing. After the company went through, as it was going through its transition to a public company, that goal, my goal didn't resonate with where the company was headed just in terms of the public investors, uh, a lot of competitive pressure. You know, they needed, they, they had just a different set of goals than I did. And so I didn't leave because I was burnt out or because like I didn't have more to contribute. I left because my goals were diverging from where the company wanted to go. And I think that's a really good reason to strike out and do something new. If, if your effort isn't bringing you closer to your goals and if your goals can't be related to a company's goals, um, that's a really good time to quit. Uh, and entrepreneurs, need be, everybody needs to be good at quitting things because otherwise the, the alternative is you have inertia and you're working towards a goal that's not that doesn't resonate. And so I went out, so at 28 days after the IPO, I rode my bike from Virginia to Oregon, a bicycle uh, from Virginia to Oregon, it took three months to reflect on like what I had experienced. And, and out of that came this idea that the next business I wanted to create, I wanted one where the impact was, was really coded into the DNA of the company. And so we picked a business model. So we have an on-demand handy person service where we employ the people as W full-time employees with benefits. Um, they're not contractors and we train them from scratch. And so the, the impact we're creating is we're increasing the skill and diversity of tradespeople in the communities we work in, um, which is desperately needed as a lot of the trade schools have closed. But because we're training from scratch and because we know exactly what people can do because we trained them to do it, it's a really, really good experience for the homeowner. And so the profit that we're creating and the purpose um, and the impact that we're creating in the, in the communities that we're in, they can't be divorced. I don't know how you would create this business without training tradespeople because there just aren't enough of them to do what we do. And all of that came out of this idea of evolving just what my mission was and, and how it related to the company mission that I was running. And I think that's true regardless of what what level you're at at a company, a new manager or a VP or, or a founder of a startup or a CEO of a Fortune 500. I think that's always true. I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think that that I, I didn't like the great resignation. I kind of called it the the great reflection, right? I really felt like it was time where people reflected and lots of people are leaving full-time, you know, work for someone else to start their own company because maybe it wasn't no longer aligned to their purpose. Maybe it didn't bring them joy anymore, right? Maybe they just, you know, didn't feel like that's where they needed or wanted to be. Um and when you start a business and say, I'm going to try to now not only fill a need, but benefit the communities I work in and try to have this kind of purpose over profit mentality, it also, I'm guessing, would attract talent and people that you otherwise may not have access to. Yeah, we have not. So Fixer's been around for six years through a pandemic. We've had nobody quit. Like no one has quit the company. Uh, no, None of the office folks have quit the comp company. And, and we attract people 
both at the handy person level and at the office level and the software developers. And we attract people who are interested in this idea of marrying profit and purpose and, and, and doing both, not trying to have to pick between one, one or the other. It can be really satisfying. It can make for some really tough conversations too. Like, you know, what, what's everything sort of up, up for debate about whether, you know, whether or not we're going to do what's right or do what's quick. And the answer has got to always be, well, let's think about the right trade-offs and, and, you know, are we, you know, are we, are we creating benefit for our, who are we creating benefit for with this trade-off? Is it for our workers? Is it for the customer? Is it for ourselves? And so, um, yeah, it, it comes with a little bit more heavy lifting in terms of conversations with coworkers, making sure that we're staying true to what we, like we're actually acting as we say we're gonna act. Um, it takes a little extra work, but it's it's well worth it because then people are so engaged and we're all working so hard together because there's some authenticity there. And so talk a little bit, it's been six years, you know, what what have you learned now? You know, what what has surprised you about maybe even how the employment market, market, marketing, like leadership or whatever has changed since you walked away from Grubhub or even started Grubhub? Yeah, I, so I started, I've tried, for, let's talk about marketing for a second. I've tried everything, everything for marketing. I, I, I have handed out postcards on a bus and I have run a Super Bowl ad and I have done everything in between and there are no silver bullets. There is not ever a silver bullet. You have to have a portfolio approach and you have to take efficiency. You have to track. And the thing that I keep learning again and again and again and again, and now like the hundredth time is there are no silver bullets. Like consumer acquisition and building a consumer brand is a long, hard, high investment activity. And, and investors don't get that. <laughs> investors think you can just spend and it's just not true. You have to earn a brand. You can't just buy it. Uh, and so that's that's one thing that I've learned. Uh, and then the other thing I think I learned that really surprised me, that didn't surprise me. One thing I did learn, I learned that surprised me is uh, it's really hard to start a business from scratch, even if you've done it before. And I had done it and then I had forgotten it. And then I relearned it again painfully. And then we had a pandemic and I learned it again. I was like, oh my goodness. Like, can we just not do that again, please? Can we all agree on that? Uh, so it's um, it's been challenging, but it's also fulfilling. It's it, hard and Hard and fun can be the same thing. Yeah, and I think it, it's a great message, right? Because I think there are many people who, uh, I, I'm one of them, um, where I often get asked, why don't you just want to break out on your own? And it was a really hard like conversation I had with myself. Like I felt like, why was I so adverse to doing that? What was I so afraid of? What was my, you know, what I really realized I am not an entrepreneur. Like, I just really realized it's just not in my DNA. Like, it's just not. But for me, my joy comes in helping hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, right? Lots of people I get a chance to interact with on helping them be really successful, hopefully entrepreneurs and leaders, et cetera. But it takes a very special person to break out on their own and be willing to just fail all the time and, you know, and stand up and keep doing it. But, you know, listen, I'm I'm thrilled to have had you on the show today to, to share your your lessons. Um, you know, for those of you listening, pick up a copy of Hangry, a startup journey, the founder of Grubhub, Mr. Mike Evans has joined us. And then his new business, you want to give any information on that, please do. Yeah, it's fixer.com. It's an, it's an on-demand handy person service where the people who do the work are full-time employees that we've trained from scratch. Amazing. And how can people keep in touch with you? What, what else, where else can they find? Oh, you? they can find me at mikeevans.com. Uh, and, and you can find links to the book or, or there's even a contact page if you want to send me a shout out. 
All right, amazing. Well, thank you, Mike, so much for joining us on this episode of the What's Next podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. And we'll look forward, or I'll look forward to having you join me next time. Thanks again.